Welcome to Advisor Talk with Frank LaRosa. Brought to you by Elite Consulting Partners, it's the only podcast offering unfiltered guidance and direct advice for all things concerning financial advisors, RIAs, and the practitioners in the wealth management business. Learn more and subscribe today at EliteConsultingPartners.com slash podcast. And now, here's your host, Frank LaRosa. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Advisor Talk with Frank LaRosa. I am your host, Frank LaRosa. And again, this is the legal perspective for advisors. And I'm joined here with with my uh, co-host for this series, Brian Neville, who's the, you're now a co-host now, (laughs) Brian Neville, who is the founder and managing partner of Lax & Neville, a securities law firm in New York City, and uh, arguably the best in the business. So I call the the 10,000 pound gorilla in the space. So Brian, welcome again to our our series on uh, legal perspective here. Awesome, Frank. I'm really enjoying these podcasts. Let's keep them going. Great. Awesome. So today, we're just going to jump into it. So today, I want to talk really about sort of a black and white thing, right? Well, it's not really black and white, but it's protocol versus non-protocol firms. And sure. what I find interesting is that it's sort of like the mistakes, there's some basic mistakes that I see advisors making when they leave a non-protocol firm, right? Leaving a protocol firm is fairly simple, but there's probably some mistakes people make. But in particular, leaving a non-protocol firm and some of the things that advisors really, I think they're trying to be cute and they, they make the process more difficult than it needs to be because even leaving a non-protocol firm is not crazy difficult. So maybe to give us some perspective there and then as a follow-up to that, some of these non-protocol firms like Morgan Stanley and UBS in particular are really doing really well as it relates to recruiting, right? Yes. Recruiting advisors to them. And so I'm curious what your point of view is on how they're doing that, like how they're handling this non-protocol issue, right? Because they're sort of like talking, I'm not saying that they actually are, but in a way it looks like they're talking out of both sides of their mouth. Hey, you can't leave and take all your stuff, but we want you to come and bring all your clients. I think that that was a big concern in the marketplace, right? When Morgan Stanley and UBS decided to exit the protocol, They did so in a way, I think that you'll recall, they stepped away from recruiting. So they didn't really have that issue of you're being inconsistent. But in the year since, and I would certainly say in the last two years, they've both stepped up their recruiting. I've represented some really impressive teams that have joined both those firms in the last two years. And what I will say, and I think it's good news, is that both UBS and Morgan Stanley are intellectually consistent with how they tolerate advisors leaving with the conduct that they will impose on the advisors joining them. I think that's the honorable thing to do. And I think that's really the only way they could continue to recruit. It would be used against them if they tried to do it otherwise. But the good news for advisors that are at Morgan Stanley and UBS, and you're thinking of leaving, you can successfully move out of those firms, play by the rules of the road, and get your book to transition and follow you. You can do that with very low fear of litigation from those firms, so long as you play by the rules of the road. You and I have had these discussions now a few times of what are the rules of the road and obviously truly confidential information you cannot take. And we all see advisors from time to time really feeling like they need to have this report or they need to have this performance report and it has account numbers, it has tax ID numbers, it has positions, it has all types of stuff that any reasonable person would agree is confidential. And every firm, UBS, Morgan Stanley, you name it, they're going to take a very dim view of you taking that when you leave. They would take a dim view of you bringing that into the firm. That is information that advisors should not take. 
but really it comes down to things like contact information. We've touched on this in some of these different episodes that we've done, Frank, but you have to know what the receiving firm will tolerate. And a lot of firms now are requiring, even if you have your client's cell phone or you've memorized them because you you call it so often, they'll prove by using publicly available sources that those phone numbers are not confidential because they're in the public domain. So there's firms out there, by way of example, They'll use whitepages.com and a premium version of that. And an advisor will come in and before they start calling, they'll say, hey, I have a client. His name's Brian Neville. I know he lives in Manhattan. I forget if it's 78th Street or 77th Street, but from memory, I know where he is. You go into White Pages, you put that information in, the phone numbers all pop up, you print them out. And no firm could be heard to say that that information is confidential when anyone in the world can get it because it's out there. So receiving firms will frequently document that whole process. And if a letter comes in from the old firm saying you're violating the employment agreement that said you can't take confidential information, then you can respond to it and say, we haven't taken any confidential information. All the information that we have was recreated from publicly available sources. So we're not violating any of those agreements. So protocol, non-protocol, it does come down to being informed about your receiving firm's rules and what they'll tolerate and being consistent with that. How do you improve? Like in, I always recommend, so we use uh, fastpeoplesearch.com. If you go to that website, you'd be shocked how much information is there is on you. I did it on myself. I'm like, oh yeah, that was my old address. That was my old email. That was my phone. You know, it's accurate. What I tell clients to do is actually go through that, go through that now and pull up the website and then print the page because when you print it, it basically timestamps and it shows like, here's the information, here's where you got the information from. You can use that, but I agree with you. We work with some firms that don't want you to do anything before you join. They want you to walk in, they give you a yellow pad. They say, here, write down the names of your clients. And then they give them to somebody, an assistant or somebody who goes in and then gets all the information and gives it back. And here, you can call this person. How are our firms dealing with the fact that the majority of advisors now with clearing getting through COVID here have client information in their cell phones just because that's just become the norm. So what are you doing in that case? It's done on a case-by-case basis, right? Some receiving firms will take a very conservative approach and say, we want you to delete all that and we're going to recreate it for you. Don't worry. And uh, obviously advisors worry, so they might not go to that firm. And then another firm is saying, We're going to allow you to keep uh, clients' cell phones in your cell phone so long as we can prove that it's all in the public domain and they do that process and it's all in the public domain and they allow you to keep it. Other firms will even get more fine. Like, do you have a friendship with that client? Do you text them about things? Almost every advisor will have a range of relationships with their clients. Some Some of them become very friendly. You know, I was in a case once where a firm took a position that because the advisor's in-laws were clients, that he had to delete his in-laws' cell phone number from his phone. And the arbitrator laughed at that firm's request. Similarly, the same advisor had a client that they both coached their daughter's soccer team, and they texted each other a gazillion times a week trying to figure out who's giving who a ride and all this. And the firm was taking a position, you have to delete that cell phone. So some firms will take very harsh positions that are really not supported in today's day and age. And I do think, Frank, you raised a good point that 
during COVID, when people are forced to work from home because of lockdown rules, you're going to have client cell phone in your cell phone. And I think societal norms have moved more towards most people don't view their cell phone as being confidential. So they're not going to be upset when you move from firm A to firm B that you have their cell phone information. They probably similarly don't want you to have account statements and social security numbers and everything on something that's not locked and secured like the firm systems are. I think most firms are recognizing that and understand that. But again, getting back to this kind of case-by-case basis, there was firms out there, Merrill Lynch Bank of America issued those kind of famous red iPhones for all their employees and everything had to be done on that. And their position is that you should be not using your personal phone to call clients because they issued you a work phone for that, right. which again is, is all good and fine, except if the client is calling you because you have a relationship and they're calling you on your cell phone, you're not going to say, hey, I, thanks for this information. I got to hang up now and call you from my other phone. That's just not reality. But the firms have some legitimate concerns in this area. And we've all seen the headlines of advisors using whether it's WhatsApp or messaging in ways that are not stored and regulators take a dim view of that. So advisors do need to be careful that they don't break industry rules with their cell phones. I think you could safely say that it is an industry norm now that client contact information can be on an advisor's phone safely. That's not a universal truism, but I think it's generally out there. Right. So with that said, because this is all you deal with it, litigation. I'm curious. I don't know if you have a top 10 list, like David Letterman's top 10 list, right? (laughs) But if you have like the top two or three big mistakes, I won't say stupid mistakes because all mistakes are technically stupid, right? But stupid mistakes advisors have made when they've left a non-protocol firm that basically they didn't have to do like, or they like, oh my God, you didn't have to do that. The classic example is just taking too much stuff. You're then almost forcing a firm to enforce its privacy policy. So if the firm has evidence that you're taking truly confidential information, that's the biggest mistake. And what we've seen in, in many cases of late in the pleadings is uh, advisors use their phone to take photos of screens and they think that that information won't be discoverable. And what I could tell you, Frank, is when these cases do go to litigation, the first thing that the brokerage firm asked for is a court order having the advisor's phones and computers copied, mirrored, so that a forensic search can be done. And then these forensic search teams, Frank, it's scary. You talk about it's scary. What is publicly available online? You're right. You can go back and it finds your address from college and it's publishing. Here's old Frank's siblings and where they live. And, yeah. and they, But if when your cell phone gets mirrored, these forensic teams can go in and they can search your photos in a way to see if you took pictures of computer screens. So it's not really violating your privacy. It doesn't show your family photos. And those get put into a folder and then a human reviews those. And advisors, for whatever reason, they go to a client meeting, they take a picture of the account statement that they made some notes on and they don't delete it or they've taken a picture of the screen, all types of things. That's one of the big mistakes is uh, taking photos of stuff that is confidential and not deleting them before a move. We talked about printing things out is a big mistake. Pre-solicitation, right? Like when you have advisors that are getting reassigned these accounts, they're trained to ask questions like, did you know Frank LaRosso was leaving Merrill? And then the client says, oh yeah, we've been talking about it for the last three months. I I knew to the day when he was leaving. You can't pre-solicit your clients. 
the top 10 list. Geez, I'd have to think of some. Can we pause I, on that for a second? Because I yeah. think this is a great point because I get asked this question almost every single time once an advisor decides they're going to leave. Like, hey, Frank, well, what am I allowed to say and not say? So from a legal perspective, you use the term a pre-move or pre-solicitation or whatever you want to call yes. it. But what are you allowed to say as an advisor prior to moving? Because we all know that every advisor has a handful of clients that are essentially must-haves if they're going to make a move. Like, hey, man, I cannot move if these top five clients, if I don't feel comfortable, at least, that I think they're going to move with me. So how do you have that conversation? What does that conversation sound like? This is really a difficult issue. I'll start with the premise of what the firm's view would be, so you'll understand. So every major firm out there would take the position that as an employee of that firm, you owe that firm a duty of loyalty. And a duty of loyalty means that while you're still an at-will employee and you can go on interviews and you can look for future employment, you can do all that, but you cannot take steps to pre-solicit clients to go with you. And if you pre-solicit, you breach your duty of loyalty and you could be liable to them for damages. But there's the example I gave earlier of the in-laws. You can certainly tell your in-laws because you're telling your wife and your family that you're going to be making this move. And people who are, the other example I've always given is your college roommate that you've remained close friends with, that you have bounced career advice on a two-way street all along. But if someone is just truly a client and use an example of you didn't even source them. You got them two years ago from an advisor who had left the firm and it was distributed to you and you were successful in keeping them in your book, but you don't really have a friendship. They subsequently sold a business and now it's you know, a $50 million account. It's very important to you. And you don't know if maybe they've had a bad experience at the firm you're thinking of going to. So you, you want to have a discussion with them about it. I would say that most firms would say that you cannot go to them and ask them, um, thinking of making a move, you have any aversion to this firm or that firm, most firms are going to take the position. You just simply can't do that. I would agree with that. I would agree with that. Like you shouldn't be doing that. There are ways of saying things. It goes, as we were talking earlier, Frank, about a, a risk spectrum. Every discussion you have, the more specific it is, the more people you include on that, the riskier that conduct is, and the more likely you increase your litigation risk. And I've had those discussions with almost every client in a transition I say, look, the other way to handle it is, is you do say nothing. And when you do make the announcement and the client is upset and says, you know, like, how could you not have told me? You really just have to turn it around and say, I would have loved to have told you, but I didn't write these rules of the road. Someone else did. And my old firm would have taken a very dim view of me pre-soliciting you. So I just simply couldn't. And I apologize. But one of the reasons I think you like working with me is, is I'm an honorable person and I obey the rules. And that was a rule I had to obey as distasteful as it was. Say if someone gives you the ability to rewrite the rules, you would say that the duty of loyalty should be trumped by your duty to your client and allow you to do that. But until someone lets you write the rules, you're going to follow the ones that are there. So this is what I sort of recommend. And you can tell me if I'm giving people the bad advice, but it's essentially what I did when I, years ago, when I was at Brown Securities and moved to Smith Barney, I had one big client and I literally just opened up his accounts was a large multi-million dollar account in like October and I was leaving in January. So I knew he was going to be pissed off because that was back in the day when every SMA manager had a separate account and separate documents and it was a nightmare. But basically what I say to people is, listen, you can tell a client you're frustrated and upset about the direction of the firm. They're most likely at that point, you've probably already had some of those conversations because they probably recognize there's issues or 
they're being told no all the time and there's operational things that are probably creating frustration. So that doesn't come as a surprise. And just like we do a review of your portfolio on an annual basis, I too do a review of whether or not the institution on that is the right firm for me to help service you the way I want to service you. And there's been some opportunities that may come up, may come up that I may find myself not here because something else might come up. I'm not saying I'm leaving. What I'm saying is there may come a time where I feel like another firm is better for me and for my clients. And if you were ever to call the office and find out I'm not here, you'll understand why. And to your point, I always tell them, make sure they understand you're not allowed to tell them. And if that ever happened, understand, it's not that I don't want to tell you, I'm not allowed to tell you. And I'm not saying I'm leaving, but I'm just saying there may come a time where I feel like this is no longer the place for me to run my practice to service you. How do you feel about that? And then shut your mouth. Yeah. Look, I think what you're describing there is generic and kind of vague enough. We've all seen situations in our careers where a firm takes a reputational hit because of something. UBS had the issue many years ago with the Swiss accounts and tax avoidance. And a lot of clients just got very upset about that. And they're calling their advisors at UBS saying, how could you work there? So that's a very upsetting situation for any advisor to be in. Wells Fargo has had its scandals, but I'm not picking on anyone here. Every Every firm we know of has had an issue or two and clients call. And so giving a general statement that you review your firm to measure it against other platforms out there to constantly just evaluate where's the best place to be. I don't think most firms are going to, if they heard about that, I don't think they're going to be able to take a position that you violated your duty of loyalty. But I think you do have to just be very careful. And this is one of the situations where I think you really do need to have a good lawyer and go over what you're going to say and be careful because the other side of these things is now, Frank, People are recording conversations so much more so than in in the past. Everyone's phone has a little button you hit and it's recording. And so you have to almost think to yourself as an advisor, am I being careful enough? If this call is being recorded and it gets played back and I'm sitting in the witness box, have I gone too far? I'll give an example. So if you said everything you said, but went a step further and said, I'm considering firm A, firm B, and firm C. Most firms would say, you've gone too far. And, right. and agree. So it gets to be a gray area. And it also depends upon the client relationship. The more sophisticated the client, the more their needs are. If you have large, sticky, private investments that aren't going to transfer, if you have extensive credit lines, all those things, you're going to want to maybe have a different conversation with that client than you have with your typical... You also don't want to have a conversation with a client, and I've seen it as a manager, where you have a conversation with a client who maybe is less sophisticated. You have a generic conversation, and you should never tell a firm, a client, which firms you're thinking about. And my thing is, under any circumstances, don't ever mention a firm. If they say, well, what firm are you talking about? Well, there's lots of firms out there that seem interesting. I don't... I haven't made any decisions. I always say, keep saying that. So if that conversation is recorded and they play it in front of an arbitration panel, you're good, right? But you want to avoid the client that says, well, you know, of course, because after you pause and how do you feel about that? They say, well, yeah, that's fine, blah, blah, blah. Then they hang up, they call your branch manager and they say, so I just want to know when Frank leaves, who's going to be my new advisor? They do it innocently. They don't know. But you have to be careful with who you choose to have those conversations with. 
And I want to just get to this one last point because I think it's really important because you made a point about this. When an advisor is going to go to a new firm, usually that new firm has their own counsel that they offer up to coach the advisor. But where I come in and I say, listen, you need to have your own attorney giving you your advice because if something happens, I don't think advisors understand this. If something happens and there's an issue with litigation, I'll call it the firm-sponsored attorney, is really on the side of the firm, not the advisor. And the advisor needs to be able to say, well, this is what I was advised by my attorney, not the firm's attorney, because the firm's going to go, no, that's our attorney, and we're out. Can you just touch on that for like two minutes on why that's so important? I think most of the attorneys that are hired by firms to be transition counsel for their recruits, these attorneys are all very good. In fact, I do that for several firms. And most of these attorneys have a ton of experience. They start off, Frank, with a disclosure. That's really important because you, as an attorney, when you have two clients, so now you have two clients, you're representing the firm and you're representing a recruit. You need to explain that the call is attorney-client privileged with one huge exception. And that exception is you're going to share everything that the recruit tells you with the firm and anything that the firm tells you, you're going to share with the recruit. Well, that exception almost swallows the rule. And the attorneys, most of the ones I know, they'll confirm that in an email to the recruit saying there's attorney-client privilege, but this exception. That attorney, and when I do it, I make it very clear, I can only assist you, Mr. Recruit, Mrs. Recruit, in the limited issues of where you are completely have common interest with the firm. So that's avoiding litigation and getting you over there. I can't help you negotiate your agreement by way of example, because that's a negotiation. That's arm's length. No lawyer could be on both sides. You just can't do that. It's a conflict. But those lawyers hired by the firms are also, they have a directive from the firm of this is how you're going to advise. And typically it's the most conservative approach to a transition. And you as a client may want to ask, what if I do this? I'm not saying I'm doing it. I just want to learn about it. So now that lawyer has to say, look, thanks for asking. I'll answer it this way. But then they go back and they have to tell the firm, this recruits thinking about this. And it was just a thought. It's not even something that you were necessarily doing. So now the firm that you're thinking of going to knows some things that are in your mind about what you might do, what you might not do. And that conversation was privileged except to the firm. So you really need your own lawyer who's only looking out for you, in my opinion, in these. And also because they can't negotiate changes to your agreements. They can't assist you with issues with your old firm that may be very important to you that they're not retained to help on. What about in this situation, and I've seen it happen, where the firm attorney is giving the advisor advice, and, and I try to tell these clients not to do this, right? But they do something outside of what the attorney tells them to do, and it sure. gets them in trouble. I say in trouble. It creates an issue where now all of a sudden, now it's going to go to arbitration. Isn't there a separation now where that attorney for the firm is essentially beholden to the firm, not the advisor anymore, because they essentially didn't do what the attorney told them to do? That happens frequently. And if the conduct that the advisor did is bad enough, frequently the firm will terminate them. So now you've been terminated. You don't have a lawyer. The law firm that you had been relying on is now representing the firm and pointing a finger at you. You're out there on your own. It's very important to have your own representation in these transitions. And that's just one example of why. And every year we'll get 
retained by someone who went through that process that you just described, and they did something that the firm found objectionable and they get terminated. And now you have a whole huge issue because typically that conduct is violative of an industry regulation. So you're going to be facing, you now need to find a new firm. You need to have a written statement to that firm that is going to be discovered by FINRA. You're going to have a FINRA investigation, if not state investigations, all of which probably could have been avoided with better planning. Awesome. I was trying to get to that point because I think it's really important. And I'll just say this, I guess it's not advertising to you, but it's an advertisement to all securities attorneys, right? Don't use your buddy. If you're listening to this and you're thinking about making a move and you're going to go hire an attorney, don't use your buddy who does real estate law or your cousin who's, you know, just because he's a contract attorney doesn't mean he understands this world. You know, if you're in this space and you're making a move and you understand the value of hiring an attorney, it needs to be a securities focused attorney because this is a very complex business with lots of things happening, new players and firms. And so it's really important. So Brian, thank you again. This was awesome. Another great topic, which we could have kept going on and on about, but we have to limit our time. That's why we're going to do this as a series. I think it's going to be great that our clients will have a resource to go to to cover these areas. And again, these are the areas that I think that come up the most as we're working with advisors across the country and areas that you see that, you know, probably encompass the majority of the type of business that you're handling. So I appreciate it very much. What's the name of the website that they can go to? Obviously, Lax and Neville, but is it Lax? LaxNeville.com. Super simple. LaxNeville.com. L-A-X-N-E-V-I-L-L-E.com. He's got a great team there. If you're looking for support, give them a call. I appreciate it very much for our listeners. Thanks for joining us again. Hope this was informative for you and you learned something, maybe helping you avoid a little bit of a landmine that you maybe don't see coming. So thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Brian, thank you. Look forward to more. Thanks for listening to Advisor Talk with Frank LaRosa. If you're looking for more advice or solutions on any topics in the financial services industry, or you just want to subscribe to our podcast, head on over to EliteConsultingPartners.com slash podcasts.